Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, Merry Christmas to you. I want to say welcome to our chapel service joining us. We're so glad that you're here and to our online worshipers. We are glad that you are joining us as well. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. By a show of hands, how many people had to bust out the stretchy pants? Anybody with me? Okay, that means, that means you did it right, okay? And, and now we flip the page and we enter into the season on the church calendar known as Advent. And Advent is different than Christmas. See, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of, of Christ, of the Messiah. Advent is a season leading up to Christmas where we enter back into the story of Israel's waiting. That word Advent literally means arrival or coming. And Advent is, is filled with tension. It's a season where we intentionally plant our feet in between two worlds or two affirmations. It's the season where the church remembers Christ has come. And it echoes the refrain, and Christ will come what? again. Christ will come again. Karl Barth, the great theologian, summarized it best, I think, when he wrote, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? His point is we perpetually live in between these two affirmations. Christ has come and Christ will come again. It's in this season that we discipline our souls to have action in the midst of waiting. And that's what Advent is about. It's about awakening. It's about awakening to the story that we're living in and the story that we are every day of our lives living out. And Advent is so important because we live in a world that can so easily lull us to sleep. Can I get an amen? In our age of digitalized distraction, it can be so easy to go along with the monotonous hum of the world, never awakening to the fact that there is a deeper, more profound reality knocking at our door every day of our lives. And Advent is the season where we grab our uh, proverbial lamp and we dip it back into the manger once again to let it glow with faith. And hope and love as we journey out into this present darkness, remembering that our King has come and He will one day come again. And to that end, we're going to spend our Advent season exploring one word that weaves its way throughout the Gospels as they recount the birth of Messiah. It's the word, behold, behold. It reminds me of uh, poet Mary Oliver's poem where she wrote instructions for living. She said, pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. That's what this word behold calls us to do. You behold when you see an accident take place. And you behold when you see a hillside covered in flowers. It's a word that says, look. Don't miss it. Pay attention. Take notice. It's an exclamation point demanding it be read 
with inflection. And it's the word that John used when he announced the Messiah's coming under the pages of history. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29 said this. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in this moment that John the Baptist turns himself into dude with a sign. I don't know if you're familiar with Dude with a Sign. Dude with a Sign is popular on Instagram these days. He has roughly 8 million followers, and he's just a dude that takes cardboard and writes different things on it and takes pictures of himself. And 8 million people like what he has to say. He says things like, I learned cursive for absolutely no reason. (laughs) Can I get an amen, right? He says, saying calm down doesn't work. Any husbands want to go, yep, learned that the hard way, right? Uh, his son, one of his signs says, double dipping isn't that gross. No amens to that. I see, I, I get it, I get it. Uh, one of his signs, he said, how are they getting milk out of nuts? Which can we all agree is a great question. And John does the exact same thing. He just, he he stands on the proverbial street corner and he holds up his sign and his sign says, behold, behold, don't miss it. You might, you might walk right by it. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John takes it upon himself to point out He who shall not be missed. And he calls our attention to the very same thing this morning. It's him, John says. John, a little bit untamed, a little bit unpredictable. He who Isaiah wrote about in saying a voice cries. That's John's voice, cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And God's people needed a herald. They needed a dude with the sign. Because they'd spent hundreds and hundreds of years waiting. Lulled. Maybe a bit fearfully into thinking that God had forgotten them. That God had overlooked their plight. That God wasn't going to come through for them. And so, John, a person in the wilderness, a a little bit crazy, covered in camel hair, scraggly, unkept beard. Maybe a little bit of honey in the corner of his mouth still. Says, don't miss him. Don't miss him. See, John wants us to behold the Christ, the Messiah, and in so doing, he tells us why the Messiah came. He came to take away the sin of whom? Of the world. Theologian Dale Bruner captured it like this. He said, the 29th verse of John is the Mount Everest of John's witness to Christ. See, it's in this verse that John points out for us that he is the lamb of God, not one of the lambs of God. John points out to us that he comes to take away sin, singular, not many sins, plural. No, he comes and he takes sin and he tears it up by the roots and destroys it once and for all. 
Oh, and he takes away sin, meaning he does it perpetually, continually. Takes away is in the present tense because John wants you to know that this Jesus has removed your sin for all time. So, why would Jesus, God incarnate, come to deal with sin? And here's where we have to pause. We have to pause and we have to acknowledge that the scriptures are really, really clear that our core root problem, and not just yours, but for all of humanity, is a sin problem. It's the foundational problem for the entire human race. And I know, to our modern ears, that may sound a bit strange. It may sound a bit foreign. Because we live in, in the, inundated with the narrative that enough, with enough progress will eventually solve all of our problems. And the scriptures push back against that and tell a very different story. See, when you hear about people talk about the issues that our world is facing today, very rarely will you hear somebody bring up, our greatest issue is sin. And yet, this is the anthem from the scriptures from the very beginning. Every other problem we have, death, sickness, division, war, famine, it all finds its inception in sin. To say it another way, if you were to subtract sin from the world, you would have heaven on earth. And so John's announcement, don't miss it, John's announcement is that he was born so that sin might die. Christmas isn't just about a baby being given, it's about sin being taken. That is to say, our biggest problem being eliminated by a baby born in a dirty manger. Yeah, Christmas is certainly about God coming, but it's also about sin leaving. Behold, Emmanuel faith, behold, Jesus was born into obscurity to bear the sin of humanity. He was born into obscurity to bring, bear the sin of humanity. <laughs> It's not, Christmas isn't just about giving of presents, it's about the carrying away of sin. It reminds me of this company, 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I don't know if you're aware, but 1-800-GOT-JUNK is a $300 million business. Which means we got a lot of junk, can I get an amen? And what they do is they show up at your house and they load up all the junk you want them to load up, and then they take it all away. And I think at Christmas and John's declaration, behold the Lamb of God, when Christ is born, he's saying, I want to take away all of your junk. I want to take away all of your pain. I want to take away your hurt. I want to take away your sorrow. I want to take away your guilt. I want to take away your shame. I want to take away your death. I want to take away your fear. I want to take it all away. And it's here that we start to get this picture that the anthem of Christmas, the, the incarnation, it's a rescue mission. It's not an instruction manual. It's a call to look and to behold, not to pull up our bootstraps and do. It's to recognize what God has done, not what we must do. 
Now, my guess is that you have been in situations where an instruction manual just wouldn't get the job done. When my family and I had moved from Colorado back to California here a few years ago, our moving truck was roughly three weeks late getting to our house. It was a long three weeks. And when it finally arrived, it came on a Sunday. And there was about four men who sat in this large moving truck and they demanded that we give them cash in order to start unloading our moving truck. Now, on a Sunday, all of the banks were closed. And so I tried Venmoing them the money, didn't work. I tried zelling them the money, didn't work. Nothing would work except cash. And it was at that moment that one of our friends called us and said, how are things going? And I went, not good. Moving trucks here, but they demand cash. I need 3,200 bucks to get my stuff off this truck. And what I didn't need was this person to say, have you tried going to all the different ATMs? <laughs> tried it. Have you tried, you know, fill in the blanks, keep going, right? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? You know what they said to me? I'll be there in 15 minutes. I got you covered. <laughs> wow. That's what God does, the incarnation. He doesn't say, you know, have you tried working your way out of your sin? Have you tried doing penance for your sin? Have you tried just sort of trying to overlook it or minimize it? Have you tried that? No, no, no. That's not what he does. See, incarnation is a rescue mission. It's God coming to us saying, I am taking away your sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did you know that every time you say the name Jesus, you reaffirm this mission of God? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Matthew records the angel speaking to Joseph. He says, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name. Say it with me, church. Jesus. Jesus. Whenever you don't know what to say, just say Jesus. Most of the time you'll be right, okay? <laughs> For he will save his people from their sins. It's in his very name. His name, Jesus or Yeshua, is two words put together. Yah, which is short for Yahweh, and Shua, which means to save or to redeem or to rescue. If you put it all together, Jesus quite literally means God rescues. God saves. Not work really hard and you'll find salvation. That's not the anthem. To believe in Jesus' name, friends, is to believe that God actively cares about and actively goes after rescuing a doomed humanity. And in order to understand what John is really talking about when he says, behold the Lamb of God, we need to sort of pull back the layers of this moniker that John uses, uh, the, the Lamb of God. What does he mean by this? See, the Israelites would have had a few hundred years of picturing their suffering servant as, as a lamb. It was Isaiah's prophecy that brought it into clear focus for them when he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. That, that's you and that's me. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is where we, we cue handle in the back of our mind, don't we? And our iniquity is hard. Right? This is where he gets it. 
Thank goodness the recruiting season for the choir for concerts is over, right? Yeah, this is, this is exactly where Handel gets that idea. And it's so important because what Isaiah is saying and what John is pointing to is that Jesus takes our sin away by taking it upon himself. He becomes our substitute and in so becoming also becomes our savior. Isaiah goes on and he says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb. Behold, the lamb. That's led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears, he's silent. So he opened not his mouth. The Jewish people had 600 years of viewing the suffering servant as a lamb. So you think when John stands on the street corner and says, behold the lamb of God, it strikes up some images in their mind, does it not? But there were images that preceded this one that talked about a lamb who would save. (laughs) Yeah, Israel had a history of of lambs who saved. See, one of their foundational narratives was that of of Exodus. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, let me give you a quick one-minute synopsis of the story. The Israelites were in slavery for 400 years under the Egyptians. God promised to free them, and he sent Moses to tell the Pharaoh, what did he say? Let my people go. Thank you, Charlton Heston. We've got that one downloaded, right? And Pharaoh said, no way, Mose. And God sent 10 plagues in order to get his attention and pry his hands off of his beloved people. The last plague was the plague of death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Now, it's harsh, I know. But the narrative throughout scripture is that the wages of sin is death. Sin always brings about death, which is why Jesus comes to deal with sin. He doesn't come to give good advice. He comes to take care of the problem that is haunting our souls. Yeah, yeah. So he frees them. It's harsh, I know. But remember, Egypt in all of this epitomizes sin in the story. Sin always leads to death. And the way the Israelites avoided the peril of this plague of death was to take a lamb's blood and to paint it around their doorposts. Listen to the way the story is recorded in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beasts, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I I just put this in yellow because I'd love to do a whole series on this, but I don't have time, okay? So I am the Lord, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you and destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, the blood of the lamb saved them from death. The lamb gave life by giving its life. The blood on the door was a sign that blood had already been shed in that home, that the people of God had already surrendered what the angel had come to collect. But, but, that story didn't end with the Israelites simply avoiding death in Egypt. The story is called what? Exodus, thank you, one person dialed in. 
right? It's called Exodus, right? They're not just saved from death in Egypt. They are led out of slavery into the promised land to worship their God. Exodus certainly happened, but it's more than just a story that happened. It's a story that happens, it's an, it's an archetype of a bigger story. When John claims, behold the Lamb of God, he's claiming a new exodus is on the horizon. A new exodus is here. A new freedom is possible. That when John says, behold the Lamb, he has all of this in mind. That just like the Lamb's blood provided a way for the Israelites to walk into freedom, so too does Jesus' blood provide a way for you and for me to walk into freedom. It's by faith, faith alone, that we receive this freedom that Jesus gives. And we need that freedom. We need this announcement because we all have our Egypts. And we all have our pharaohs. So the announcement for us this morning, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is just as poignant for us today as it was for those first listeners to that crazy-haired John the Baptist as he stood on the street corner and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So what does it mean that Jesus would take away our sin? Let me give you four things that it means for you and for me today. Here's the first one, and I'm putting this one first because in so many ways it's a domino effect that the other three are related to this very first one. And it's captured once again by John, Jesus' friend, as he writes letters to the different churches. He said this in John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. He says, you know that he, he, Jesus, appeared. This is incarnation language, isn't it? He showed up on the scenes in order to take away sins. Does this sound familiar? Please say yes. Yes. Yeah. And in him, there is no sin. Skip down to verse eight. The reason the son of God appeared, the reason for the season was to destroy the work of the devil. The reason for the season is destruction. The reason for the season is defeat. The reason for the season is the conquering of your cosmic enemy, the devil. See, the reason that we can have so much joy in the reality that Jesus is the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world because in so doing, he defeated our enemy. And yeah, there's some here today, you're not walking in the freedom that Christ has purchased for you, that's available to you, but I can assure you that that is Stockholm Syndrome, it's not your reality. Stockholm Syndrome means you've made friends with the enemy and you do not want to walk into the freedom that you are being provided. It's available to you today because of the work of Jesus. In Christ, we can escape the devil's tyranny and walk into victory. And what does that look like? So glad you asked. Brings me to my second point, that when Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away our sin, he conquers our fears. From our fears, release us. I think we've been reminded over the last few years just how powerful fear can be. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, fear can keep us inside of our homes. 
Fear can build a, a wall around our heart. Fear can distance us from other people. Fear can completely shut our hearts down. Yeah, it can cause us to do all sorts of things that rob us from life. But when we talk about the connection between sin and Jesus taking away our sin and freeing us from fear, there are two distinct fears that the authors of Scripture have in mind when they talk about fear that's associated with sin. Here's the first fear that Jesus destroys when he carries away our sin. It's the fear of punishment. John wrote about this also in 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. He said, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Just a quick time out. You will, I will, we all will one day face judgment before the throne of God. We will be called on to give an account for our lives. How we used our time, how we used our energy, how we used our resources. How we honored or didn't honor God and didn't honor or did honor other people. Our lives will be laid bare before God. And we will give an account. And we will either say to God, I'm with Jesus or I'm on my own. Those are our only two options. Either he carries your sin away or you carry it before his throne. One of those two options. And what John says is because of the work of Jesus, because of the love of Jesus, we don't have to fear judgment. We can have confidence because he is, so we are also in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in Love. John's point is that if you know the love of God as displayed in the work of Jesus, you have no need to fear standing before God. Because you stand before him holy and spotless and blameless because of the lamb. Behold, the lamb of God. Does sin deserve punishment? Absolutely. But Jesus, in taking our sin, also took our punishment upon himself. In so doing, he removed God's wrath and the punishment that sin rightfully deserved. It's why when we say, behold the Lamb of God, something in our heart should take flight with gratitude because of the grace that's being displayed in that Lamb. So he removes the fear of punishment. He also removes the fear of death. (laughs) And death is a big deal. Can I get an amen? I heard you out in the chapel too. It's a big deal. It's such a big deal that Jeff Bezos is spending part of his multi-billion dollar fortune to try to find a way to outrun death. He he invested in this lab called Alta Labs, and their goal is to try to figure out a way to slow the aging process and even to kill it altogether, pun intended, okay? Okay. That's what he's investing his money in. But I want to just say, Bezos is a little late to the game. Like Jesus has already beat him to it. Listen to the way that the author of Hebrews writes about it. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is incarnation, friends. He partook of flesh and blood that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do, do you see the echoes of Exodus? Freed from slavery through death. Yes, this is what Jesus, the Messiah, is doing on our behalf. A new Exodus story is being told that when Christ came and died and was resurrected, he rendered the devil powerless over our lives because to live is Christ and what? To die is gain, as Charles Wesley so powerfully wrote. Born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Truly, truly, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in him that night. And if we don't have to fear judgment and we don't have to fear punishment and we don't have to fear death, what do we have to fear? What do we have to fear? Behold, the Lamb of God who carries our fear away. And when that Lamb removes our fear and he defeats our enemy, he also removes our guilt. He removes our guilt. And I think we need to nuance this a little bit because um, I've heard some churches, some preachers talk about, other, you don't need to have any more guilt because of Jesus and what Jesus has done. And, and while that's true, I do think we need to nuance it a bit because there are times when guilt is simply your conscience's way or the spirit of God's way in you of telling you that what you did was wrong. So to have no guilt doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. It might make you a psychopath. <laughs> and we wouldn't want that, right? So sometimes guilt's a good thing. The question is, what do we do with our guilt? Ah, and that's where the Apostle Paul comes in and he writes to the church in Corinth and he said, for godly grief, or, or you could say guilt, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Here's what Paul's saying. You can carry your guilt in two different ways. One is the way that the world carries guilt. And it looks a little bit like blaming others. That wasn't my fault. That was because they did that to me. Or minimizing. Eh, not that big of a deal. It's not as bad as what they did. Or even trying to justify ourselves in one way or another. Maybe it even means doing a little bit of penance. That's worldly grief or worldly guilt. But godly grief, godly guilt is repentance. It's confession. It's honesty. Here's where I've been. Here's what I've done. My faith in Jesus is unwavering because of my failures. That's a godly grief. It's freedom to confess, freedom to see forgiveness, freedom to know that the lamb has already carried our sin away. Friends, please don't miss this. Don't miss this. The enemy would love to speak and whisper condemnation into your ear, but the spirit of God longs to speak conviction that will lead you to repentance and lead you to life. And those voices can sound very similar at times. 
Which is why it's so important to remember the gospel reality that there is therefore now, right now, this very moment. And when you read this tomorrow morning, it'll be true then also. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe, maybe this Christmas season you receive the gift of guilt removal. I think this is a word for some of you in here today that you've been carrying on your shoulders for a long time. The guilt of decisions that have been made. The guilt of the outflow of those decisions on you and the people that you love. And today, I just want you to hear John declaring, behold, don't miss it. You don't have to carry it anymore. What he's carried to the cross, you don't need to carry on your shoulders. Today is the day of freedom, a new exodus to walk into life. And it may not be guilt that you need removed. It may be shame. See, guilt is the conviction I've done something wrong. Shame is a, is a condition that we believe about our identity at the core of who we are. Shame is the conviction I am wrong. It's the reason that when Adam and Eve were created in the garden originally, they were naked and had no what? Shame. But when sin enters the picture, they start sowing fig leaves for themselves and hiding in the bushes so that they aren't seen. It's always the effect of shame. Shame always drives a wedge between us and God and us and each other. Shame creates isolation. And you know what else shame does? Shame repeats a story in our minds over and over and over again. I'm unworthy. I'm unlovable. And if they knew the real me, they certainly would reject me. And you know what else shame does? Shame creates a self-perpetuating, self-fulfilling prophecy where the longer we tell ourselves that, the more we actually believe it and it starts to play out in our real everyday lives. If you're carrying shame, let me just be a dude with a sign and say, behold, the Lamb of God, he took away your shame. You don't need to carry it anymore. I love the way that Professor Lewis Smeads put it. I think he captured it well when he said, guilt was not my problem as I felt it. What I felt most was a gob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sins I was guilty of. What I needed more than pardon was a sense that God accepted me, owned me, held me, affirmed me, and would never let go of me even if he wasn't all that impressed with what he had his hands on. Anybody else need that same affirmation today? Even if he's not all that impressed. <laughs> Let's be honest. Which one of us is impressive? I'm not. Even if he's not all that impressed, will not let us go. Friends, I don't know what story you're telling yourself, but I know the story that Jesus is telling about you. The story he's telling about you is one of love, is one of redemption, is one of wholeness, 
is one of life, is one of calling. His, your name is engraved in the palm of his hands. He rejoices over you with singing. This is the story that he tells about your life. And it's the very reason the lamb came to take away the sin of the world. I don't know if you caught it. Some of you are in here going, yeah, that's great. That's great, Ryan. But that's just certainly not for me. It's for other people, it's just not for me. And I just want to point out that John, in this great declaration, points to Jesus and he does not say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the people who deserve it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away religious people's sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, what does he say? The sin of the world. There's a number of different ways that word world is utilized in scripture. Same as the way it's utilized in English. But one of the ways, and the way John means in this text, means every person. It's the same way that Jesus would say to Nicodemus, for God so loved the who? World. Meaning everybody. Which also means you. That he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting Life. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scope of Christ's work is breathtaking. Don't dilute it and don't limit it. It's for the whole world. And the entrance into Jesus' saving work is simple. Believe. Believe. Don't complicate it. His work is sufficient for all, but effective for those who believe. See, the devil's main strategy today may be to blind you from beholding. It may look in your own mind something like, I don't need my sin taken away. It's not that bad. It may look like or feel like, I don't need saving. I'm strong. I can save myself. It may be something like, this is good for everybody else, but it's just not for me. Those are lies. Let the lamb carry them away. Today, behold him. Behold him. His life began in a dirty manger covered with muck and mire of animal feed and it ended on a Roman cross with his arms stretched out and him covered in your sin and mine. Behold him. Look long enough to see your sin there. Don't look away. Don't blink because it's uncomfortable. Look at him carrying away your sin. And maybe, just maybe, this Christmas is more about addition by subtraction. Maybe the greatest gift you receive this year is not something that's given, but something that's taken. Because what Jesus carried, you can release. Behold, the Lamb of God. Can you accept this gift? As we close our time today, I want to invite you to just put your things away. And I want to invite you to behold. In the chapel, you're going to join us in this as well. I've invited our band to come back up and they're going to be playing a song entitled, Behold the Lamb of God. And as they do that, I've put up the Isenheim altarpiece. It's by 16th century painter Matthias Grunewald. And it's on our screens. 
And at first glance, it looks a little bit like many of the other crucifixion paintings that you see around, but Grunewald did something really, really interesting. See, in the bottom right of this main panel, he actually put John the Baptist inside the painting. Now, if you know the story at all, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. He wasn't at the crucifixion scene, but Grunewald puts him back there, head intact and all. And he has him with his bony little finger pointing at Jesus. And notice what's at his feet. A lamb. He doesn't want them to miss it. He doesn't want us to miss it. He wants us to pause. To behold. To to pay attention. To be astonished. To tell about. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.